didn't. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Joel chapter 3. This will be the last sermon in the book of Joel. And then just to give you a road map of where we're going, uh, because of Palm Sunday and Easter, it seems strange to dive right into a new book. So we're going to do uh, a Palm Sunday sermon from Zechariah 9 next week, and then we'll have an Easter sermon, and then we'll go into 1 Peter after that. But this is the last sermon for the book of Joel. So Joel chapter 3, that's where we'll be in just a moment. So one online dictionary defines mama bear as a strong, aggressively protective mother, likened to literal mother bears, which are notoriously violent and aggressive when confronting a danger to their offspring. Mama bears are great, but mama bears do sometimes have limitations. They are imperfect, they are finite, and they lack the ability to perfectly account for everything in life. But as the church, we have the privilege of having the best defender and protector there is. The Lord God is the defender and the protector of his church. And unlike a mama bear, he has no limitations on his power to defend his people or to perform justice on their behalf. But like a good mama bear, he zealously and even jealously defends his own. And furthermore, we can know that everything God does for the sake of his children is always perfect and complete. So the proposition for this sermon is that because God defends his people, we must know that he will judge justly. So that introduction, let's read Joel chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly And speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks, in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the warriors say, or let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. 
The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountain shall drip with sweet wine, and the hill shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever in Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to this text, a difficult text, we do pray for your help, that you would feed us through it, that you would give us living water through it, that we would understand what it means that you dwell in Zion. Lord, help us this morning, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So Israel had been terribly oppressed by other nations, and in their suffering, they were unsure of what to think. And I think you can imagine their thoughts. If God is all-powerful and sovereignly in control over everything, why are the nations continuing unpunished for the evil they committed against the Israelites? Well, our text gives hope to all the Israelites that God has indeed kept track of his enemy's sin, and he will repay them justly. They will not go unpunished for the sins that they have committed. So we're going to look at two points this morning, and here's the first point. Because God defends his people, we must know he punishes his enemies. So chapter 3 picks up on the end of chapter 2, 28 through 32, and that section promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in that same promise was the threat of the great and awesome day of the Lord, that at the end of time, the judge would come to judge the world. Now, it's going to be terrifying when God rises in his power to judge the earth. But this section also promises that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So when we read in those days and at that time, we're to think of the day of the Lord. That's what that phrase is meant to point us to. Jeremiah, the prophet, used the same expression to refer to the future promised blessings for God's people. On the last day, all of God's promises will be fulfilled to Israel. So our text will explain how some of those promises will be fulfilled. And we see that beginning in verse 1. And then in verse 2, we see what God plans to do to the nations. He will gather them together in the valley for judgment. Now, gathering the people is part of his judicial session. It is like a judge entering a courtroom. It's like him hitting the gavel on the podium and pronouncing that the court is now in session. Now, if you go looking for this valley called Jehoshaphat, you might be searching for a while because no one has ever found it. No one knows the location of the valley of Jehoshaphat. But I don't think we're meant to be pointed to a real location. Jehoshaphat is a combination of two words. Yahweh or Jehovah, which you can hear in the name, but the second is Shaphat, which means to judge. So it's a verb meaning to judge. So you take the two together, and literally it means Yahweh will judge. That's what Jehoshaphat means. So the name of this valley serves as a theological symbol for what's going to take place. 
If this is a courtroom scene, then we need to ask, what is he judging the nations for? Well, the text is going to give us the answer to that question. The nations have sinned against Israel. Many ancient powers oppressed Israel without much thought. But by sinning against Israel, they also sinned against the one who redeemed and who owned Israel. So why this connection between Israel and the Lord? Well, God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 gives part of, gives part of the explanation. Those who curse Abraham, God will what? Curse. But those who bless Abraham, what will God do? He will bless them. So by sinning against Israel, what the nations were really doing was picking a fight with the sovereign God of the universe. Not the smartest move. The famous Puritan theologian Matthew Henry says that whatsoever nation injured God's nation, they should not go unpunished. For he that touches the Israel of God shall be made to know that he touches the apple of his eye. The nations didn't just stop at fighting or taking wealth. They captured and they sold the young people off to distant places. And so here we really see three steps to their sins against Israel. They wrongly fought with Israel. They wrongly profited off Israel. Then they used those prophets to feed more wicked practices. And so they're going to be punished three times over for their sin. And verse 6 adds to this charge of enslaving Israel. Not only did they steal and sell the Israelites, but they attempted to remove them so far away that they could never return to Israel. They sought to remove all manpower, both in terms of production and military service, by removing the enslaved far away from their home. And they accomplished this by sending them across the sea to the Greeks. By persecuting Israel, the nations sinned first and foremost against God. The Lord so closely identifies with his people that to oppress them is to sin against God directly. He will not allow an attack on his children to go unpunished. Verse 4 starts a different style of writing as, as God begins to speak directly to the nations. And I want you to pay attention to the, to the sarcasm and the taunting that's used in these verses. God is acting as a plaintiff, giving sarcastic indictments against the nations, only to switch over to the role of judge to render justice. It's as if God is saying, as one commentator put it, what have I done that you dare treat my people this way? God asks, has, has he done something to them that they behave this way? Of course, we know that God is perfect and he could never do anything sinful against anybody or any nation. His very character is totally opposed to evil and any form of it. Furthermore, God is the perfect form and source of all that is good and just and holy because his being is very essence and foundation of those virtues. Therefore, we have to conclude that these nations have done nothing or the, excuse me, that God has done nothing to these nations that they need to turn around and pay God back for something. Since then, the rape nations rage out of spite. Their punishment will be weightier. They have no excuse. They have no reason to sin against God's people. And so God will punish them quickly and succinctly for their evil. In verse 5, God continues to bring charges against the nations. Not only have the nations taken the people, but they also took the wealth of Canaan. The temple, the palace, and the personal treasures of Israel were stolen by conquering armies. But then this verse gives us even more ammunition for the fire. 
Similar to how the nations used the enslaved Israelites, they used the captured wealth to add to their pagan shrines. And once again, we see a threefold statement of sin. They assaulted Israel, captured wealth that did not belong to them, and then they used it to adorn their pagan temples and palaces. So through their sin, they fed more sin. On verses 7 through 8, God ceases to make charges and begins to pronounce sentence on the nations. There's an immediate sentence of punishment against the nations, and that punishment is in the form of lex talionis. Now, that's defined as the law of retaliation, whereby punishment resembles the offense committed in kind and degree. In other words, the same thing that you committed, the punishment is turned around back on you. So God did not pour out judgment on the nation, surpassing what they deserve for their sin. God is a just God and repaid them back according to their evil. Everything that they did to Israel will now happen to them. Now their children will be sold into slavery to the Israelites. And God will raise up the very Israelites they traded against them. So the plan of the nations to remove Israel's ability to train these soldiers will place them behind enemy lines as sleeping agents. Isn't God's justice poetic? What is interesting is that there's an immediate fulfillment in these pronouncements well before the incarnation of Christ. The Sidonians, one of these nations listed, they were defeated and enslaved by the Greeks in 345. And then Tyre and Gaza were defeated and enslaved by Alexander the Great in 332. So as with most other sections in the book of Joel, he's presenting two connected concepts. The nations will be temporally punished according to their evil. And we saw that this just happened in history. But they will also be a final day of judgment on the nations. So while there was a historical judgment on these specific nations listed, I think the greater emphasis on this whole passage is on the final judgment. So we can see this transition by the change in the text of poetry. The specific nations listed, Philistia, Tyre, Sidon, along with Egypt and Edom, all these are going to be punished. And in verse 9, we see an immediate call from God to the nations to prepare for war. Notice the word consecrate that's used, at least in the ESV. Ancient nations saw a very close connection between war and their religion. A war was really a religious event for these pagan nations. So they would go and they would sacrifice to their gods. They would pray for victory. They would do anything they could if they thought it might give them an edge in the coming battle. It was a religious affair. An example of this is in the book of Habakkuk. We're told that Babylon sacrificed to their own power and to their weapons of war. So really, there's a mocking tone here in the text. God is saying, go ahead, call on your gods for help. I'll wait. Meanwhile, back in 2:15 through 16 of Joel, all Israel was gathered together to repent and seek forgiveness for God for their sin. There was no excuse to come in that part of the text. Even newlyweds had to leave their honeymoons to come to the temple to weep. Well, in a similar way now, all the nations, every nation, is called to prepare for battle here. No one is exempt. No one is allowed to skip out or sit by idly and watch. All the armies of the earth from across the ages are to gather together. And God says, do your worst. So when reading through this passage, you, have, you may have been shocked by verse 10. And I was when I began studying this passage. And this verse will probably seem very familiar to you. 
It's very similar to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, and then Malachi 4, 3. But there's one huge difference between this part and those two passages. In Isaiah, there's a wonderful promise of peace and that all weapons of war will be turned into farming implements for peaceful purposes. In other words, you won't need weapons of war anymore. There's going to be peace. But here, for the nations, Joel reverses the promise. So one commentator calls this a parody of Isaiah. The promise from God to the nations is this. There will be no peace for you. In fact, everyone must come ready to fight. Verse 9 talked about the strongest warriors coming to battle. But now even the weaklings are called to come ready to fight. And again, God is really mocking the nations here. The Hebrew word for warrior, the root of it, means strong or mighty. Well, who did he call to say that they are warriors? The weak. So every last man, woman, and child is called to fight, weak or strong, sick or healthy, bold or timid. So imagine the numbers of all unbelievers from throughout history gathered together. How powerful that army would seem. But what power is that compared to the army of the living God? But in their pride and in their rebellion, they will look around and they, they will say, we are strong. Well, throughout this section, we see a staccato, hurried, and an urgent style of writing. And Joel is using these phrases in this part that almost seem incomplete, just short little tidbits. You can just imagine a panicked army assembling, trying to scramble together, trying to form battle formation. They're disorganized, they're disunified, they're unruly, and yet they're trying to form ranks for battle. And again, God is taunting their impotence, saying, hurry up, let's see what you've got. And finally, in verse 11, we see the great showdown between the armies of the nations and the armies of the Lord of hosts. All the might of history gathered together against Yahweh. Then we see the last line of the verse calling on God to send his army. So the question is, who will win? The thought of the nations all gathered together in great multitudes is something that would probably be amazing to see. Can you imagine the power of all the forces in history gathered together? But what is all that technology, might, and power of history against the Almighty God? You see, we find the power of the world stunning only when we do not truly understand the power of the Lord over His creation. Let's think more about God and His army here. Who is God's army? Well, the two options are angels or the saints. Well, 2 Thessalonians 1 said that Christ will return with His mighty angels which I think is a good persuasive argument here. But here's the thing. The same God who can call on locusts to exact judgment on Israel or raise up nations to judge Israel's enemies will not lack an army on the day of the Lord. And in fact, if we focus too much on who the hosts are, I think we're missing the main point of the passage. The point is that God will be at the head leading and directing this army. So God will determine its power, not the army itself. He who spoke creation into existence need only say the word and his enemies will fall because his speech is potent and it is powerful and precise. And we can see the power, the veracity of God's power by reading on in the text. In verse 12, the nations may gather together for war, but where is God? He is seated on his throne. The nations will pour into the valley prepared for battle. They come for a fight, but there is no battle to be had. 
Their most fearsome power cannot even contest with God's justice. We see more of this in the repetition of the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which, if you remember, means Yahweh judges or Yahweh will judge. So they'll gather together and then God will what? He will judge. Well, Joel uses this repetitive style for emphasis. The literal translation is something like God judging will judge the nations. So what will the verdict of this great judging judgment be? Verse 13 uses a double image of a farmer calling for a harvest and a vineyard owner calling for grapes to be trodden and crushed. In Joel 2.24, Joel describes Israel's promised future blessings with threshing floors full of grain and wine and oil overflowing the vats because of the abundance. But now the imagery is again flipped for the nations. They will be harvested and tread on because their evil is at its fullness. So part of the blessing for God's people will end up being part of the judgment on the nations. And God never judges too early and he never judges too late. Whenever God determines sin is at its fullness, he exacts judgment. So with the nation's armies gathered for war, you may be waiting for their attack. But it is God who commands the attack in this passage. The nations are really gathered together for defeat and for judgment. Therefore, he sends forth his army to exact justice. And verse 14 reminds us of the great power and the number of the nations present. But even with all that power, they are not able to oppose God. They are there for one purpose, and that purpose is judgment. And we see similar language about the cosmic nature of the day of the Lord in verse 15. This verse is really for the nations. Matthew Henry says that the sun and the moon shall be darkened. Their glory and luster shall be eclipsed by the far greater brightness of that glory in which the judge shall appear. Darkness is an appropriate representation of the judgment wherein there is no escape. Once darkness falls, all hope is lost. On the day of the Lord, before the face of the only holy judge, there is no escape. Then we finally arrive at verse 16, where God renders the final verdict. In the beginning of time, God displayed his power by speaking all things into existence. Similarly, at the end of days, he will utter his voice. And just as the world came into being, the sinful world shall perish into eternal hell. God's voice shakes the world like thunders and carries the weight of total and complete surety that whatever he has said will come to pass. The same voice that thundered while leading his locust army will now roar against his enemies. Notice the source of this thunderous voice. God's voice will come from Zion and Jerusalem. These places are no refuge for the nations, but they are for another group. It is from Zion that God exacts his judgment on the nations. So how do we summarize and apply this section before going on to our last point? Well, there have been many evil nations in the history of the world. Many groups and cultures have sinned grievously against God's law. In our day, we can look at the wickedness of abortion, homosexuality, sexual preferences, critical race theory, and many more things. But the most severe out of all these issues is a growing opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not physically persecuted, but businesses have been shut down, churches fined, suppressed, and oppressed by governments. There's also a culture, especially in academia, which mocks Christianity. 
Well, Paul in Galatians chapter 6 calls us the Israel of God. We are his people and all who seek to persecute the church will one day stand in the valley of Jehoshaphat and God will render justice according to their deeds. And that's something that should really make us stop and should fill us with wonder. The Lord will not allow one wrong ever committed against his church to go unpunished on that day. And part of our salvation will be to see every wrong ever committed against the church punished justly. Without that, our salvation would actually be incomplete. In verse 16, God's voice comes from the place in which he has set his name. He has set his name upon his people. Not only will Israel not be harmed during this event, but it will signal Israel's final vindication. You see, judgment and salvation, they're two sides of the same coin on the day of the Lord. Israel has repented and God has promised to restore them. But is Israel's salvation really complete if the enemies and the culprits of their sufferings do not answer for their crimes? Well, there cannot be true rescue for Israel if her enemies are not punished. We cannot miss that fact. Part of our salvation includes the judgment of all enemies. All right, well, the second and much shorter point is that because God defends his people, we must know he blesses his people. So in the end of verse 16, we see a transition from focusing on the Lord punishing the wicked to him acting as a refuge for his people. And he is our refuge in two ways here. First, he is our safe shelter from the judgment itself. We do not have to fear the coming day if we are his children and if we are in Christ. But second is that he is a refuge when others oppress us in this life. Since we can trust that he will do as he has promised, we can be encouraged even though the whole world may be against us now. And that may lead us to ask, how is God our refuge? What is the means by which he defends us? And how can we know that he is indeed our refuge? Well, if you look at verse 17, it answers the question for us. We are told that God dwells in Zion. It's come up a lot in this text. His presence is what guarantees his promises. Okay, so we can ask, what does it mean that God dwells in Zion? Well, the word dwell is the main word used for the presence of God in the Old Testament tabernacle. God dwells in the midst of his people. And when we look to the New Testament, we can understand this more fully. Listen to what John 1.14 says, talking about Jesus Christ. And the word became flesh and dwelt, the word there can also mean tabernacled, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The entire purpose of the incarnation was for Christ to come and dwell in the hearts of his people. And this is why Paul can say that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. So that means that wherever you are, the Lord is dwelling with you. The Lord dwells in Zion. God dwelling with his people is not merely a figurative symbol or a geographical truth, but the reality of a God who actually walks alongside his people at all times. So as fallen human beings, we have short memories and we have weak faith. One only needs to read through the Old Testament to see how even the most faithful saints of old had to be continually reminded and disciplined and pointed back to the promises of God. Knowing our weaknesses, our gracious God gives us several signs that these rich promises will be fulfilled. First, God promises that in the new heaven, in the new earth, there will never again be anyone who desecrates 
his temple. On the day of the Lord, there will never again be anyone who desecrates the dwelling place of God. The promise is that there will no longer be anyone persecuting his church. It will be fully vindicated. That's not the only sign he gives us. In verse 18, he promises rich physical blessings to Israel. God promises us rich provisions. As we think about the blessings, remember where Israel was at this time. Back in Joel 1, the vines were withered. The cattle had no food. There was no milk. The brooks were dried up. The promise is that there will come a day with plenty of wine, with plenty of food for the cattle, plenty of milk, and abundant sources of water. Now, if you're an Israelite starving in a parched land, God promises that on that day you will not lack anything, that there is a coming day of plenty. And if we look at the individual promises, wine represents joy, successful harvest, and wealth. If you have an abundance of wine, that means nothing, and no one has destroyed the crops. Israel can enjoy the fruit of Canaan. The land promised to them is a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, if you've read through the Old Testament a lot, you've noticed that Israel rarely got to experience that because of their sin. But on the new earth, there will indeed be a land flowing with milk and with honey. The cattle will have no shortage to produce rich milk. Now, Jerusalem was a city up on a hill. There was no fresh source of water inside Jerusalem, which made sieges very dangerous for Israel. They had no water. Now, many tried to fix that problem, but I think God gave them that problem on purpose so that that they would learn to rely on him rather than on things around them. God is at the center of his city, and he promises that he will be their supply forevermore. Now, the Valley of Shittim is believed to have been a very dry nearby valley, just bone dry. But On the new earth, there will be so much water flowing from God's presence that it will water even the driest, most barren places. The thirstiest of lands and peoples will be contented. In Joel 1, the temple sacrifices had ceased because they did not have enough food to make offerings. And it represented the fact that Israel's fellowship with God and worship had ceased. But now God promises that the temple itself will become the source of all life, refreshment, and joy. From God's presence will flow life itself to Israel. And we see in Revelation 22 a much greater fulfillment of that promise where the river of life flows out from the throne of God. And it will issue forth through the city. And from those waters will grow the tree of life, which will bear 12 kinds of fruit for the healing of the nations. So all of these descriptions in Joel 3 are given to represent our rich salvation in Christ and our heavenly inheritance that we await. One commentator says that Joel's purpose is to take up the key phrases used to describe Judah's disastrous condition in the first half of the book and to weave them into a grand finale of reversal. Isn't that a beautiful picture of God's redemptive plan? A grand finale of reversal. From hunger to plenty, from drought to life, from poverty to untold wealth from being apart from the presence of God to him dwelling among you. In verse 19, God again promises that all his people's enemies will be punished for the evil they committed against them. Egypt was the old slaver of the Israelites who oppressed and fought with her frequently. Edom were the descendants of Esau who committed many sins against Israel, including looting Jerusalem when the Babylonians came. But all that Israel suffered under the locust plague and these wars, they left her barren. 
the awful things that she went through. But now those same judgments are pronounced against all the nations that set themselves up against God. They will be repaid in full. And only when they are defeated and judged for their evil will Israel's final vindication be complete. But out of all these blessings, all these promises of vindication, the greatest blessing on Israel will be God's dwelling among them forever. There will be perfect fellowship between God and between his people. Never again will they be hurt or oppressed by evil nations. They will be as untouchable as God himself. Not because the church is strong on her own, but because God has placed his name upon them and he dwells within their midst. One commentary says that anguish for Zion marks the beginning of Joel's message. Assurance for Zion marks the ending. The book started in a horrible place with Israel in rebellion and under judgment, but it ends with the promise of glory and of peace and hope for now. And I find that picture of water flowing out from the temple to be the most comforting thing in this passage. That living water will flow out from the temple, cleansing and renewing even the most stubborn sins and the stubborn hearts. Even those things which we have struggled with our entire lives will be washed clean on that day. The dry valleys of our imperfect hearts will be watered and renewed perfectly in Christ, and we will be satisfied forever in our Lord. So by way of conclusion, I want us to look at verse 21 for just a moment. This verse presents us with a wonderful application for this entire passage. Israel was receiving this revelation from Joel, but they were still standing in a barren, parched, and devastated landscape. Their situation was terrible. So did that mean that the promises of God in this book were void? You can ask yourselves the same question. You may not have to worry about physical persecution or martyrdom. That's something we can be thankful for. But you do live in a world where the very idea of absolute truth and morality is condemned. You live at a time when refusing to bow down to social justice, homosexuality, subjectivity, whatever the sin may be, can get you censored and canceled. In the future, it may be illegal to preach or to listen to the preached word of God. But with all these difficult evils in the world, are these promises any less true for you right now? Or if you're tempted to be dismayed or, like me, impatient, look at verse 21. What is the promise that God has made? He told Israel, I know I have not punished them yet, but I promise you that I will. God will not let any evil slide, not then, not now, not ever. Not one iota of sin will ever be forgotten, especially sins committed against God's children. Yahweh is far superior to even the best mama bears. All evil will be answered for in the last day. And to the world, that should be a terror, but not for God's people. We have hope and certainty that our God will fully bless us and will right every evil ever committed. And in his judgment on our enemies, we will be fully vindicated. But how can we have this confidence when all around us things seem hopeless? I'm going to ask you again. Look at the last line of verse 21. This is a promise God already made in this passage multiple times. We can be confident because the Lord God Almighty dwells with his people. And he will never leave us nor forsake us. Let's pray. Lord God, we do rejoice in this truth. Left to ourselves, we are without hope. But you dwell among your people. You dwell in Zion. You have placed your name upon us. You have called us to yourself. And you live even within our hearts. 
And Lord, we thank you that you will hold all accountable on the last day, but that even now, even if things are not good, that we can look forward with great hope because you have promised us life in Christ and life abundantly. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this. In your name we pray. Amen.